Well, welcome back to another episode of Pain Reframed. Today, we have Dr. Jesse Podolek joining us, going to be talking about really her journey of how she came about as a physical therapist entering this world of working with patients with persistent pain. This is Pain Reframed. She'll also provide a really authentic voice of her own journey and understanding how our own journey in life really helps inform our management of patients with persistent pain. We're really honored to have you on, Jesse. And can you tell the listeners a little bit about yourself and where you're coming to the show from? I am a physical therapist. I live in Eau Claire, Wisconsin, which is about 90 miles east of Minneapolis, St. Paul. I currently own my own uh, little direct pay micro practice, I guess you'd call it. It's a very small little shop. I see outpatients, orthopedic outpatients, acute pain, chronic pain, a lot of preventive stuff, which is fun. So I've been doing that for a few years. Prior to that, I worked in a small rural hospital for six years and then a couple of outpatient clinics where we saw really difficult patients. I kind of call it call them both the clinics where docs sent patients who had failed therapy everywhere else. So that was really the trial by fire for about, oh, 12 to 13 years in those uh, couple of clinics that I worked in. So, and I'm right now also teaching for ISPI. I teach therapeutic neuroscience and in the pain certification program and love that and spend a good chunk of my time doing that. So that's what I'm up to. Well, it's always interesting to hear, how, how did you get into really the neuroscience of pain and really how did your shift happen and to get you to this place you're at now? Yeah, uh, well, I have to blame you, Tim, and also Adrian. After about 10 years of practice, I was working in what I will call kind of a guru clinic. My boss there was a fantastic manual therapist. He was an osteopathic minded therapist, so sent me to some great continuing education at Michigan State. Um, I loved it. I loved hands-on therapy. I love manual therapy. I still use it quite a bit. What I was finding 10 years out of practice and four years with my guru boss and lots of really good courses later, I was finding that I had this handful of patients that no matter what I did, I just was seemingly not able to help them. I couldn't find the key lesion. If it was an FRS or a, a right on left sacral torsion, I just could not seem to find that key lesion with those folks. And it kind of led to a little bit of a confidence crisis and kind of what am I doing here anyway? I, I had a lot of students at that time that would come in and I would be their CI and I would teach them all these great techniques. And at a certain point, I just thought, you know, is this really useful? And certainly it is useful for many people, but there was that handful of patients and I got fairly frustrated and actually started thinking maybe I would be better off as a sandwich artist, go work at Subway. My student loans were paid off finally. And I thought this is just so frustrating. And it was about that time that the transitional DPT programs were um, really gaining some traction. And I found myself applying. It was either kind of go sandwich artist or take the next step professionally. So I did take the leap and uh, enrolled in the TDPT program at Regis 
And my second class that I took was management of the lumbopelvic region taught by none other than Tim Flynn. And it was a great course. It was just, there were so many things that were freeing about that approach to patient care and manual therapy. I remember we talked about the lumbopelvic clinical prediction rule for manipulation and watching that manipulation, the one that the original study was under and how kind of generic of a manip that was and thinking, wow, this helps the right people that much. And we talked about choosing the right patient to match the treatment. And that was just really eye-opening to me the, and, and freeing this idea of sort of move it and move on, keep, keep going forward with your treatment. And we got to, I think it was week six or seven of that class. And we had a whole week on the biopsychosocial aspect of low back pain. And that was the aha moment for that, for me. I just, finally things started clicking and I was probably, I don't know, drooling as I was reading all the posts and the articles and I just loved it. And somebody asked me on a discussion forum at that time, have you ever heard of Explain Pain? And I had not. And so I looked it up and lo and behold, two weeks from then, it was being held in Minneapolis at the spring conference. So I it was just like, you know, the skies may as well have opened up and the doves fluttered down as, oh, I was so excited. I'm like, yes, I have got to go to this class. And it was taught by Adrian Lowe. And so I went and it completely rocked my world. It changed the way I viewed patients. And that was 10 years ago now. That was 2008. And so then I became a hardcore groupie of both Evidence in Motion and ISPI and alternated every year between Manipalooza and the, and the ISPI Pain Conference and just went every chance I could. I was very fortunate to be here in Wisconsin because Adrian did a series of evening lectures at my old PT school at St. Kate's in Minneapolis. So I would just head up there on Wednesday nights once a month and took in as much as I could and invited any of my colleagues that I could to come along with me because I, I just knew, like, you know, when the truth hits you straight in the face, you're like, this is truth. And I just knew that this was the truth of what was going on. And it wasn't so much that I stunk so horribly as my confidence crisis would have led me to believe, but it was more of like Adrian introduced almost every talk that he gives. It's not about us. It's about the patients. It's where they're at and we have to meet them where they're at. And I realized for 10 years, I hadn't been adequately meeting most of these folks where they're at. As you summarize there, meeting the patients where they're at, I'm always curious how we got a bit off the rails in medicine. And I suppose we could talk a lot about the history, about the paternalistic nature of it, and that we actually do to others and we fix people versus, you know, really what we're now seeing is we guide and we coach and we nudge people, hopefully to better, to better health. I guess the question I have is, as you're at your the point now, you know, what do you see as a therapist out there and other healthcare professionals, you know, what is the way that we can really shift to this patient-centered approach? Because the buzzwords are there. I mean, people, you know, it's everything. It says patient-centered, patient-centered, patient-centered. But if that's the case, why are we continuing 
to do stuff to people we shouldn't be doing. And I, I guess I'm curious your thoughts on that in terms of, you know, how you got there and how, how you're kind of seeing what's happening currently in pain management in your community. And is there a shift towards truly patient-centered? Great question, Tim. For me personally, I think it wasn't just professional development that helped me to kind of realize what we do to patients. It was just maturing as an individual, looking outside at different leadership kind of things and even different spiritual aspects. I remember reading a book once. It was called When Helping Hurts. And it was such a great book. And it was about the paternalistic tendencies of one community um, that may be affluent and well-off and very well-meaning to go into another community that maybe was underfunded or, or had some kind of a need and just lay on the, we will dig you a well, we will do this, we will do that. But then kind of just dropping the ball, kind of the fix it mentality. So that's not just in healthcare, it's culture wide, it's global, it's a, a kind of a global tendency. And I thought, how arrogant of me to assume that I have all of these answers. And sometimes my helping does hurt. And I think that we're seeing that, you know, the consequences, sometimes helping hurts if we don't realize that the person or the group of people that we are coming in and coming alongside of have what it takes. They, it's in there. And that's what I try to help my patients understand. You have what it takes. It's in there. It's in you. We just have to figure out a way to help pull it out. And so that's what I try to do with my patients. And that's what I'm seeing more of. I, I remember at one of our, our pain conferences a few years ago, Tim got up in front of everybody and said, the future of healthcare is helping patients help themselves, teaching patients to care for themselves. And I think that's so true. And I think that's why you're seeing this huge upswing of even what we might deem less, um, I don't want to sound snobby here, less professional or the alternative kind of practitioners, life coaches, personal trainers, these people who really do kind of come alongside and walk alongside and their job is to coach. And you see the market eating that up. They're, they're calling these life coaches. They're, they're seeking less the traditional counseling and saying, I just want a mentor. I want a life coach. I want somebody to walk alongside me and guide me a little bit and just give me what I need to take that next step, but not bombard me with everything. And don't give me more than I need. Don't overcoach me. Don't do it for me. I think of a little kid, like when we're, our kids are little and they say, me do, me do it. I do it. I do it when my kids were little. And I think our patients deep inside, we want to honor them and their internal drive to me do it. I want to do it. Let me do this. Just give me the tool. So I'm hoping that we're moving in that direction. I think from what we see in the market, we are. It just looks a little different than traditional healthcare. Jesse, as you've kind of evolved and, and shifted gears in the way you think about your patients, you know, how, how has that from a very in-person, in the clinic, in the trenches kind of a standpoint, how has your behavior changed with your patients specifically? I mean, are, are you structuring your treatments differently? Are, are there certain things that you are doing that are distinctly different from how you used to practice kind of in light of this new information? Yes, I treat very differently than I, than I used to. Um, I mentioned I still use manual therapy but it's framed very differently. It's kind of this idea of let's keep visits to a minimum. 
my expectation of the patient is you will do your exercises. I'm going to get you moving. You're going to keep it moving. This, this is just a nudge in the right direction and you're going to keep things moving. And that's how you're going to get out of here without having to keep. I assume people have way better things to do with their time than to hang out with me in the clinic. We have fun. It's a good experience, but I know people's lives are busy. So I kind of put that out there right at the beginning is I'm not expecting to see you two times a week for the next six weeks or eight weeks. I'm here for you. I'm your resource when you need me. But actually with my clinic, I often don't even schedule a follow-up visit. I say, my assumption is that you are doing great. If I don't hear from you, you're doing great. On the flip side, if something's going on and you don't reach out to me, that's kind of on you. I need you to reach out. I'm here. I want to help you. But I do put a lot of ownership on the patient versus that kind of paternalistic model of helicoptering over the patients. I'm, I'm definitely putting more ownership on them and letting them know, like I said, you know, using pain neuroscience is very, it's just such a awesome way to help a patient see that they really, they have that alarm system and they are in a position to turn the sensitivity up and down. There's so many things that we can empower them to do to dial it down. And so I'm just one small facet of that, but there's so many things that they can do behaviorally to dial it down. So I guess that's what I would say is I see patients less frequently. I put more of it on them. I cheerlead. I celebrate like crazy when they're doing well. I, I really want them to believe that they have it because once they have this belief and this hope, it's like a light bulb goes on and they're like, you're right. I don't need that much help after all. Most people don't need that much help. There's certainly people who need a lot. There's this whole kind of flip side of, you know, the really severe patient who has been in pain for so long and just needs, you know, multidisciplinary care and whatnot. But I have seen some really cool patients who've had significant pain for a long time. And really what they needed to hear was that permission that you're going to be okay. There's nothing I've seen in this, in this detailed evaluation assessment that I've done um, that has me thinking or would lead me to conclude that that you couldn't do this activity that you really want to do that's meaningful. So I spend a lot of time cheerleading. I do do, I would say, longer evals. I spend a lot more time clinically out of the gate. So I, I make sure that I have adequate time to do a very detailed evaluation to make sure, sure I'm rolling out red flags. Yeah. How, how long are we talking maybe for, for, for a given kind of in-depth eval? You know, when I talk with patients, and that's one of the benefits of a micro practice is I screen them on the phone myself, typically. And so they'll give me just a brief synopsis of what's going on. And so kind of depending on, you know, how many different things and how long they've had pain, at minimum is an hour. Um, but I've had patients on that first eval be 90 minutes, you know, to up to two hours. So, and the other reason too is, like I mentioned, I have a direct pay practice. So people are interested in getting the most they can for the time they invest. So they they want to come in and get a good chunk of information. Um, so sometimes a challenge for me just in that practice is making sure that I pace my education. I get so excited about this stuff. I run the risk of sharing every single story, right? So I've made a, a rule for myself, you know, two stories max per patient, just 
flush them out well and make sure to engage them in the conversation. That's another thing too is as time has gone on and you know you realize how you need to make the patient an active participant in the process. So even manual therapy, right? The things that we've learned about cortical remapping in the brain is instead of just a patient just laying there and you guys talking about the weather and us just mobbing away, L1, L2, doing the little up and down dance, is to you know ask a patient, okay, where am I touching you right now? Am I angling this this force up or down or in the middle to sharpen those brain maps? So they are really involved and engaged during manual therapy. They're involved and engaged during exercise, asking them, what do you feel? What do you sense? Can you feel how that's fluid? Yep, let's let's just get that moving nice and freely, nice and freely. The PE, obviously, it's a conversation, it's not a lecture. And that's a that took me a long time. Like I I went to explain pain a couple times and then TNE and then every time I moderate it online with the group or that I teach it, I feel like I learn more and hone those skills just a little bit better of how do you include the patient in that conversation because out of the gate, you guys, I was so excited. I was like, it's time for school. I'm the teacher. You're the student. Sit down. I will draw for you and talk at you. And that is totally not how it is anymore. It's much more conversational. Thank goodness. But so that's what I would say. I, I really draw the patient in a long, heavy, you know, initial visit to get good buy-in and create a really nice rapport. Oftentimes there's not that many follow-ups. Give people the right tools. Choose the tools wisely. They don't need 20 million. I'm like, look for the one or two money exercises. Like these two things, if you do these couple of things and you understand how this works, you're going to do great. And so I think it's a lot of optimism, reassurance. Louis Gifford has this awesome quote in his aches and pains book. It just says, reassurance is analgesic. I love that. I, I think we can just, we can be analgesic in our tone, in our confidence, in our uh, excitement to to see people and just in honoring people and and I just really think it's this huge blessing people they choose to come see us in a vulnerable time in their life so we meet them where we're at where they're at and walk alongside of them and then just bless them forward so that's how I approach it it's a funny thing Jesse the, the more that I've spent time kind of challenging myself to change my own behaviors you know the more I've, I've really come to realize that that patients aren't looking for s- solutions they're, they're looking for support and, and I had mm-hmm. that backwards forever, you know, and it's funny, the, the more I'm trying to change my own patterns, the more I'm realizing it was really me who wanted to have the solution. It was really more my ego. It was yeah. about me. Like I wanted to tell them I know what's wrong. And it's funny because cerebrally, I, I know that that pain is multivariate, yet here I am trying to find a univariate solution, I'm trying to find that one thing. What the person clearly really needed was, like you said, some reassurance, right? Some advice, some some encouragement, all the things that that simply can't be wrapped up into this nice defined quote unquote answer. Was it a black and white turnaround where where you realized that and you changed this practice pattern overnight? Or were there growing pains? I mean, was it something you evolved into over the past couple of years? I think both and. I think the, you know, kind of like I said that first time I heard, you know, the principles of pain neuroscience education, I was kind of stopped dead in my tracks and forced to reevaluate. But old habits die hard. I was thinking about that as you were just talking, you know, framing your question, Jeff, and you're not the only person who's had that. I think all of us And maybe it's the generation that we grew up in, in, um, you know, when we went to school or what, but maybe our young therapists are feeling the same thing. Maybe it's a personality thing that draws us as healthcare workers 
we want to come along. We have a tendency as helpers and fixers. And so it's what we want to do. It's part of our identity. And, and again, I just think that even that whole paternalism that we can get so mad at, like, and say, gosh, we went astray. I will always say, I don't think anybody did it on purpose. It was well-meaning. Sometimes patients are very angry. They come in and they say, how come you're the first person who told me this? How come nobody else knows this? Why, you know, why are my doctors telling me that this is because that this is torn or ripped and you're saying it's not? Why would they do this to me in essence? And I just have to take a step back and I, I don't want to do anything to, to jeopardize my relationship with my patient that I'm building. But I do want to sometimes come to our defense, the old me's defense and the old you's defense and the current medical system out there in a way and just say, at least it was always well intended by the majority of us who are in the trenches treating people. We can say whatever we want to about systems and profits and business. And when healthcare became a business, that's when the whole stuff hit the fan. But for those of us who went into this, I think we went in wanting to help people. And it's a hard lesson to learn that sometimes less is more when it comes to giving people the help that they need. There's a couple of things that resonated with me in terms of first encounter with a with a, a new client or patient and creating that therapeutic alliance with them. And you know, I guess I just call out to listeners out there too that you know sometimes you know we're not always in spaces where we can spend that much time uh, right. with the patient. But what's interesting, I, I find this is throughout healthcare, it's like, more so, I should say, in the medical side, less in the psychology side. And I always say we're more, we got our feet in both camps, that that first, you don't really figure out how to go about treating, coaching, whatever we want to use in a first, rarely in a first encounter with someone with a persistent problem. Right. And the key is if we can establish a relationship and provide at least some reassurance and a connection that, hey, you're in the right space. Mm-hmm. And I always say, if I can get that in the first visit, if they, I can get them to believe, despite all the, the failed treatments to date, that, you know what, this place is different. I think I might be in the right space. I always say that that's a win. That's an opening for us as we, as we, as we move forward. Absolutely. And I do have this very luxurious kind of opportunity to spend this this time with patients, but I think you can you can create that trust very quickly. And that's those somebody called them soft skills at CSM. The the eye contact, the nonverbal, the communication, the the trust building. It was just a delightful um, moment for me because uh, or one of the people in the audience stood up and said, um, I'm going to challenge you to the speakers um, to please not use that word soft skills. These are higher order skills. And I think that's very true. And that's what you're talking about, Tim, is if we can work to hone those higher order skills, and they are skills, like we've just been talking about slowing down and listening to a patient instead of lecturing them. You know, all the warmth, the the reassurance, the confidence, um, some of that comes with time. But some of that it definitely can be learned. When we know our stuff, when we know how pain works, that gives us confidence. When we know the, the evidence of who goes, who's going to respond to which category the best, that gives us confidence. So that confident reassurance, you can do that in a 30-minute eval. 
So I think those higher order skills used properly can really create that alliance when you don't have, you know, that long chunk of time to make a buddy for life. So Yeah, and I think you really hit the nail on the head, these higher order skills and people often know are wondering how do we begin, you know, this process. Yes, knowledge, as you said, you had the knowledge, but you were doing what has been shown to be an ineffective way of Parting that knowledge, that is a lecture is one of the worst formats, though we continue to do it, right, Uh, in higher education. (laughs) But, you know, lecturing people really is not a good strategy versus discovery and adult learning type of uh, models. So where to start is often um, thinking about how is my eye contact, how is my warmth, and thinking about those skills with the same intensity Mm -hmm. that you think about, you know, a psychomotor skill, that I think is still underdeveloped throughout healthcare and definitely underdeveloped in physical therapy. I agree. I totally agree. I had I had a competitor once uh, in our area when I was working at the the Guru Clinic try to see if he, I, he could get me to come over to his side. He was he was a very nice guy, but I remember him saying, "Yeah, but you you know backs." I'm like, "Well, I, yeah, I know backs." And he said, "Anybody can learn backs, but." You can't teach anybody to be nice. And I thought, yeah, you, you can't, you can teach these skills. I wanted to say you can, not, not just to be nice, but, you know, it's that kind of that taking good care of yourself just as an individual. And that's, if I ever have any advice for therapists, it's like nurture your own person, like, you know, figure out who you are emotionally and spiritually and relationally and be balanced yourself you know, if you got into PT school or if you got into nursing school or any of the disciplines that are listening to this, you probably got some really good intellect. And if you're anything like me, you might geek out and really like to scroll into, you know, all these podcasts and all these TED Talks and all this great stuff, learning, learning, learning. But just make sure, you know, that we stay balanced. I, I've learned so many lessons that I apply to patients in realms far outside of physical therapy and far outside of a professional circle. So I think that's just a good little bit of advice. And maybe that's why, you know, at a lot of our courses, we see people who I, I, what I say is, you know, kind of the gray in their hair, the more they just sit back and nod and, and you can tell that this is, they're like, finally, somebody's putting words to this, what we've seen all of these years and what they've kind of known to be true. And so part of it may just be that experience of growing, you know, and getting more comfortable in your skin. So not to discourage any of the youngsters out there, but part of it is we just learn by falling flat on our face so many times until we figure out this didn't work very well. That creates humility, which is what we need to. So I just think we've got to be humble and keep developing ourselves on a broad spectrum. And that will help us develop those higher order skills too. Jesse, that's wonderful insight. You know, Tim and I have talked on on long, long jogs down in Knoxville about, you know, what is it that creates kind of a special practitioner? You know, what is it about some people that others just feel so comfortable around and kind of create that therapeutic space where that growth and transformation can happen? And I think a huge one is that person has become very, very comfortable with themselves and they're in a really good place. As well-intentioned as, as you might be, it is really hard to earnestly root for somebody else when you yourself have not obtained what they're going for. You've got to find a way to get yourself straightened out. Are there certain things, Jesse, that you might recommend to people in particular, things that have worked for you and strategies to kind of get yourself into that space where on a daily basis, 
you can you know, really give of yourself to others um, and have that energy available and have that honest intent and, and wholesale ability to be in their corner. Anything in particular you might share? Oh, that's a good question, Jeff. In fact, when you asked that, I just think about a couple of years ago, I sort of hit a wall in, in that realm, actually, where it just was empty and a little calcified and a little irritable and crabby with my poor husband and kids all the time. And I just felt like, what's going on here? And I had to like kind of take a step outside and I asked, you know, some good truth telling friends in my life, you know, hey, what do you think? And they were courageous enough to to tell me what they thought, which is awesome. Um, but I thought I'm going to have to approach myself the way I would approach a patient. And that is look at all areas of my health. Where am I falling off track physically? You know, am I getting good sleep? Am I going to bed at a reasonable time or burning the midnight oil. I tend to be a night owl and you can't run on empty for very long before it starts really affecting things. So um, am I eating decent? And of course, you know, when things are rough, sugar tastes twice as good, right? So, you know, just looking, what am I doing for my physical health? Okay, check, check. These are a couple things I need to get going. What am I doing for my mental health? What am I putting in my brain? What am I spending my time and energy focusing on? So looking at garbage in, garbage out, putting in good things. For me, a couple big things, what I lean on the heaviest are my friends and my faith. So what are are those areas of my life looking like? Am I balanced there? Have I been taking time out to do some social things? So that I think is really, really important having you guys. I used to run for the simple, pure joy of running and exercising. I don't know what's happening as I'm getting older, but my motivation is like tanking. So now I have it set up. Literally, Monday morning is gen morning. We meet at the gym if it's too cold to run and we do machines. Wednesday morning is... Gina and Ben. So, and it's fun because my, my Wednesday morning is my dearest friends is a physician and a counselor. So the three of us, it's sort of like a joke, right? Like a physician, a PT and a counselor walk into a bar. What happens? <laughs> so the, the three of us solve the world's problems on Wednesdays, Friday morning, my friend Elizabeth and I run and she's just my cheerleader. She's has the gift of encouragement. And so, and then Saturday, if I can, you know, get one more workout in, maybe a walk with, you know, my husband or whatever. So coupling you know, my social life with my physical life and just maximizing that because we only have so much time, right? So that's what I would say for me, the biggest thing is relational health, taking care of my physical health. And then my faith is a big piece of my life too. And so when I'm out of balance, I've got to kind of come back to what centers me and make sure I'm connected there. So I would encourage anybody who is getting, because trust me, I know I was ready to be a sandwich artist. It is hard working with, you know, a high population of people who have really tough stuff that we think we need to fix, which we don't, it's not on us, it's their pain, they own it. Once we know that, we're doing a little bit better, but we can be heading in a bad direction if we if we can't get those good boundaries figured out. And then also just, you know, in full transparency and just, you know, humility is don't be afraid to reach out for help. There, I can say firsthand that, you know, counseling has been effective and helpful. Like there've been times I've needed just to talk to somebody who, knows more about strategies for dealing with crap than I know. So so not being afraid or too prideful to scroll into some of those, because now I can say to my patients, hey, I've been there. Sometimes it really helps to talk to somebody. So not being afraid and, you know, to, to access some of that traditional stuff too, because there are times when you just need a little bit of a hand. Well, thanks for sharing that, Jesse. And as you're speaking again, it goes back to that, 
you know, authenticity with our patients. And, and you're right. I mean, the older we get, the more we've seen sometimes if we're not jaded, we become sharpened and the ability to quickly empathize and understand journeys in ways that can usually be quite powerful. And I, I really think that what you shared there speaks to that. And it speaks to our, you know, ability to, you know, use when we meet people, we're, we're, we're humans, you know, and let's, mm-hmm. let's, let's meet as two human beings and yep. see if we can be of use to each other and, and make our, our, our life journey better. And I think that's just a great way to approach patient care. And, you know, as, as we come to a close, I mean, Jesse, would you mind uh, sharing, uh, how do people get a hold of you? You guys are going to laugh at me because I'm kind of off the grid. <laughs> um, more than happy to respond or to talk with people via email. I have a Facebook account, but I never, ever go on that thing. I don't tweet. I don't snap. I don't, I'm not Insta cool, anything. For me, that's just a boundary that leave, that gives me enough space to, to get on with the rest of life. But please email me if you have any questions. It's Jesse, J-E-S-S-I-E-P, as in Paul. Jesse P. Freedom PT at gmail.com. And I'll be happy to answer any questions or chat it up. That's awesome. And, you know, given what we're seeing in social media, you know, many people know about you anyway, and many people that we don't want knowing about us. So it is a yin (laughs) and yang, and we can have a whole episode on that. And we'll have to put that on the calendar. Sounds Uh, good. I'd love it. All I know is the term insta-cool has never been heard yet on the podcast. That was a very strong finish. Uh, Jesse, thanks so much. Awesome talking with you and I'm looking forward to getting this out to everybody. Thank you. Thanks. Sounds good. Dr. Jesse Podolik, you know, so cool to hear how everyone kind of makes peace with their original paradigms and then shifts that around in light of the emerging evidence that we need to encourage this process to be in control of the patient. I mean, they have to own it and, and we have to somehow get ourselves out of the way and allow that process to come together organically and to walk alongside people not over the top of them. So just a wonderful conversation. Love Jesse's energy and just love hearing these these stories about how you know you, you kind of get stuck in the mud, but then you find a way out of it. And, and the key is it's a process for you as much as it is for the patient. So thank you all so much for listening. Make sure you're checking out ispinstitute.com. So many great courses on there. The Align Conference is coming up here in June. So have a look at that. Keep tracking Tim and I on social social media and everybody have an awesome day enjoy your patient care make a difference and we'll talk to you soon pain reframed is brought to you by our sponsor the international spine and pain institute check out their transformative pain science programming at ispinstitute.com